stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. But, you know, she wanted to spend some time with her family and friends, and they agreed that, well, you know, the Thomas uh, Box said, look, I'll, I'll be in Beijing in a month or two. Uh, let's get together and, and have lunch or something and continue our, uh, our, our conversation. And, and so if you're really concerned about Peng, you've got some good news. Oh, do we? Well, that was uh, Dick Pound, Canadian, of course, high-ranking IOC official on CNN yesterday. In kind of an awkward and, and embarrassing exchange, if I'm being honest. The IOC would have us believe that, that there is no concern here whatsoever with regard to Chinese tennis star Peng Shui. Now, just the, the short version of the story is that Peng Shui had, had posted on, on Chinese social media a very lengthy and emotional post describing a sexual assault she endured and uh, accusing a high-ranking Chinese official, somebody who was instrumental in China securing the, the uh, Winter Olympics next year, as the one responsible. And after that, Peng Shui seemed to drop off the face of the earth. She was nowhere to be seen. No one had seen or heard from her. Uh, Chinese uh, censors were essentially blocking any mention of her name or discussion around the case on Chinese social media and news sites. It was an oddly worded statement that went out purportedly from Peng Shui via Chinese state media. And then there was the video call with IOC President Thomas Bach, which seemed very orchestrated. We've only seen snippets of it. The entire video call has not been released. Maybe that shouldn't surprise us. What it really, I, I think, says to us is that the IOC doesn't want any concern or controversy ahead of the games, and they are more than willing to swallow and parrot the official Chinese line on this situation. There is still very good reason, I think, to be concerned about Peng Shui and very good reason to be concerned about all of the other athletes that we're going to be sending to China. In just a few weeks' time, the beginning of February. Uh, joining us to talk more about the situation is Jules Boykoff. He's a professor and department chair, uh, Pacific University in Oregon, the Department of Politics and Government, author of uh, several books about the IOC and the Olympics, including No Olympians and Power Games, a political history of the Olympics. Professor Boykoff, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure to be back. Thanks. I'm sure you've seen the, the interview on CNN with uh, Dick Pound. Uh, your, your impressions of that, first of all. Yes, well, I think Mr. Pound was doing almost the exact same thing that Tomas Bach, the person you mentioned before, has been doing, the president of the International Olympic Committee. Uh, they're showing a ghastly disregard for the serious allegations of sexual abuse that Peng Shui has raised. Instead, they appear to have shoved these serious claims off to the side while simultaneously making their goal pretty clear, which is to create a flimsy cover story for the Chinese authorities so that the games, the Olympic Games of Beijing, can go on. Well, and you raise an important point because, yes, there's the, the very important question of Peng Shui's well-being and to what extent she's, she's being intimidated by Chinese officials here, but there's the, also the question of the allegation. And so it's one thing for Dick Pound or Thomas Bach to say, oh, we talked to Peng Shui and she seems fine. Okay, what about the substance of the allegation? What about the fact that this is somebody who was uh, very instrumental in China securing the game, someone who worked very closely with Thomas Bach? There's a pretty clear conflict of interest there, isn't there? Absolutely. And, you know, Bach, Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee, 
in his uh, talking about his 30-minute conversation that he had with the tennis player, failed to mention the fact that he has worked with Zhang Gaoli, this high-level Chinese official that Peng Shui has accused of sexual assault. And as you noted in your excellent introduction to this segment, uh, Zhang led a steering group that oversaw Beijing's Olympic bid. And so in this role, he was in contact with higher-ups at the International Olympic Committee, including President Bach, something Bach never mentioned. In fact, online now you can see photographs of a grinning Bach shaking hands with this man uh, that are available for all to see. So, you know, if nothing else, you would think this episode would be the death knell for the absurd notion that the Olympics transcend politics. And I was speaking the other day uh, with Yacho Wang, who's a senior researcher on China at Human Rights Watch, and she told me that when it comes to the Chinese government's human rights record, the IOC has long demonstrated a failure to do the right thing. But she thinks that what we're seeing now is actually a really important and different pivot. She told me that this new episode is demonstrates the active participation on the part of the IOC in something that is very wrong. And she pointed to the fact that the Chinese government has a long record of forcing people to appear on videos or television programs to make statements that the government wants them to make. And Certainly the IOC is well aware of that, but they just kind of choose to look the other way. And she told me she felt like it was shameful, and I actually agree with her on that. Well, the problem for the IOC is that if they concede that, and, and I think it's a point that does need to be conceded, but the IOC almost can't because then it raises further questions about why we're sending athletes to, to Beijing in a few weeks' time, why these Olympics are happening in China. The IOC mm-hmm. almost needs to be blind to this. They almost need to accept what China is saying because they back themselves into a corner, haven't they? On one hand, I can see what you're saying. On the other hand, will the International Olympic Committee ever have more leverage over China than it has right now? Yeah. After all, if you look at the host city contract that the Beijing bidders signed with the, Thomas Bach and the IOC, it gives enormous power to the International Olympic Committee. I mean, people in Tokyo just a couple months back learned this the hard way because there was a lot of pressure on their elected officials to cancel the Olympics. It brought a lot of attention to this host city contract that says very clearly that the International Olympic Committee held all the cards, all the power when it came to canceling the games, essentially making the Prime Minister of Japan helpless in the face of IOC power. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now would be the time, if ever, that the International Olympic Committee might just speak up against what's happening in Beijing. But, you know, I think you alluded to this in your previous comments, which is money is really driving a lot of this. And if we rewind the tape, Rob, back to 2015, when the International Olympic Committee first handed these Olympics to Beijing, that was because all manner of other cities coming from democratic countries, whether it's Stockholm, Sweden, Oslo, Norway, or even Lviv, Ukraine, dropped out of the bidding because of all these negative elements that were being raised about the International Olympic Committee and the Olympic machine. That only left Beijing and Almaty, Kazakhstan, neither of them bastions of democracy. And the International Olympic Committee went with what they knew, Beijing, and they've been a risk ever since these Olympics. And so now we're starting to see the fruit coming out. This Peng Shui thing just punctuates everything uh, that really makes us see things with fresh eyes. Is there anything that the IOC has to fear from China? Do you, do you think that's a part of it here that you know maybe China would just say, well, the hell with you guys, or, or something along those lines? Is there anything you think the IOC is afraid of if they speak out on this? Well, that'd be a great question if you could get Richard Pound on your show to actually ask him. I mean, he'd be the one to really answer that. But there's no question that 
the China that hosted the 2008 Summer Olympics is not the same China that we're looking at today. We're looking at a much more powerful country today that if it decided to say, you know what, screw you, Olympics, they could basically do that. And, you know, it's not like there's a bunch of the locals that be able to stand up and say, hey, what happened to all of the, the money that we contributed to this? Yeah. They would just move on and go to the next thing. So, you know, I think that if there were ever a moment in the recent political history of the Olympics where the host could turn its back on the Olympics, we're looking at it right now. But that's extremely doubtful that that would happen. I mean, China has a lot to gain from hosting these Olympics. There's an important concept that's getting more and more traction out there, and that's the idea of sports washing using these big mega events, sports mega events, to burnish your reputation and to launder your political dirty laundry on the world stage. And so, you know, this is a great chance for China to do these uh, grip and grins with diplomats that come over from around the world and to look important, to look official, and to host, despite what we're talking about today, one of the most popular events in terms of sports across the world. Well, there has been talk about uh, a possible diplomatic boycott, which would involve still sending the athletes, but maybe keeping diplomats home. Do you, do you think there's any serious traction to that? And, and does it matter? Is that a meaningful gesture, do you think? Yeah. Well, to the first part of your question, yes, I do think there is serious traction to that. And the presidential administration of Joe Biden here in the United States has intimated that that's a real deal possibility, as have other countries. In terms of what it will actually achieve is a totally separate question, and I don't think it will honestly achieve much. That doesn't mean I don't believe people should engage in a diplomatic boycott. I think you have to stand by your principles and and align your sentiments and your actions. But in terms of its overall effects, uh, I don't see it making a big dent in terms of what the, the country of China is able to achieve, nor the Olympic movement as it's currently constituted. You know, and you mentioned it. I mean, we went through a lot of this in 2008, whether China was an appropriate host for the games, and certainly China seeing a lot of value in hosting the games. And, you know, any notion that this was going to moderate China or bring them more into the international community, I think we've seen over the last 13 years that that just didn't happen. Did we fail to learn it? Did the IOC fail to learn any lessons from 2008? Yeah, I mean, if you listen to Sophie Richardson of Human Rights Watch, she argued in the wake of the 2008 Summer Games that those Olympics were actually a catalyst for further abuses in the country. In other words, hosting the Olympics made the repression more intense in the wake of the Games when all the media from around the world went home with their cameras and microphones. And yet the IOC definitely had all that information at its disposal. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, numerous international human rights groups have been speaking out on these very issues and supplying these well-researched reports to the International Olympic Committee. And quite frankly, the International Olympic Committee is more concerned about keeping its money spigot open than it is about human rights, even though human rights are mentioned one time in the Olympic Charter, even though the preservation of dignity is celebrated in the Olympic Charter, that all kind of becomes secondary to the International Olympic Committee's main goal, which is to keep the Olympics going keep the high life of those International Olympic Committee members going. I mean, these guys really do live the high life. And, you know, just to keep the machine rolling forward. And, and I think we're getting a really straightforward look at the ethical bankruptcy that really runs this organization right now. And I think a lot of people are, are with good minds 
thinking, is now the time to get rid of the International Olympic Committee? I mean, does the world really need this organization? Is this a moment where we could hand the Olympics over to socially conscious athlete groups or hit the pause button on the Olympics until they can get it right? And, you know, these were not questions that the media were asking only like five, six years ago, but now they're becoming pretty common in the media sphere. Well, we spoke before about, you know, how reckless the IOC was being in, in pushing the Olympics forward in Tokyo. You know, we're talking about here how irresponsible they're being here in a different context. I wonder how lasting that damage is. I mean, the IOC has a roadmap now. It's, it's an unusual circumstance where we know where the 2024 Olympics, the 28 Olympics, the 32 mm-hmm. Olympics are going to be. But how much could this derail some of their longer term plans and, and I think further damage, you know, the brand, the image? Yeah, that's a great question. I do believe that there has been significant reputational damage done to the International Olympic Committee. But you're absolutely right in pointing ahead. What have they done in the face of principled social criticism of the variety that you and I have been discussing the last few minutes? They haven't changed their ways at all. Instead, they started booking up future Olympics way out into the future. It wasn't that long ago, Rob, that they used to give the Olympics one year and then seven years later they would host that Games. Well, they changed that recipe back in 2017 when they allotted both the 2024 Summer Olympics to Paris and the 2028 Summer Olympics to Los Angeles. That was after numerous other cities dropped out of bidding, and they only had two bids standing, and they did this kind of Hail Mary move. And in doing so, they opened up kind of a new pattern. They just announced that they're going to give the 2032 Summer Olympics to Brisbane in Australia. And this is a place that has definitely not had a public referendum. It's barely even had a public discussion about this. And so I think that even though they're giving out these Olympics way far in advance, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be serious critical discussions in these cities in the years to come. Once everyday people in the city realize what they're into, once the Olympics start to roll forward and all the money that needs to be spent, their money, taxpayers' money, to make these things happen. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Professor Boykoff, always appreciate the insight uh, on these matters. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. All the best. That is Jules Boykoff at uh, Pacific University in Oregon. He is uh, professor, department chair in the Department of Politics and Governance, uh, author of uh, several books on the IOC and the Olympic movement. And, yeah, certainly I I think a big critic of the IOC, which... You know, they deserve all of it, in my view, frankly, and the way they've behaved. Anyway, we got to take a break here. We got a lot more still to come. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.